This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Eat a Peach by David Chang. If you're not familiar with David Chang, he's one of America's most successful chefs, and he has a great habit in all the work he does, both in writing and in television, where he has a show currently on Netflix, of interweaving conversations about food with conversations about life more generally. Eat a Peach is no different, as it interweaves his journey to becoming a chef with an exploration of what it means to be the children of immigrants growing up in the United States. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 334, The Spanish Flu in Japan. This is an episode I've thought about a bit for the last few weeks, largely in terms of whether I even want to do it. Those of you who donate on Patreon, thank you so much, I love all of you, and therefore have access to the History of Japan newsletter, know that I struggled with whether to do this episode because, in light of current events surrounding COVID-19, it felt a little too topical. I certainly want this podcast to be relevant to people's experiences. I think that's one of the biggest values of history as a discipline, but I also respect that podcast listening can be an escapist endeavor. Not to part the curtain too much, but I certainly have used and continue to use it in that way. But even with that consideration, I still feel like we collectively, and historians specifically, have a responsibility now more than ever to be thinking directly about matters of public health, matters which, at least in my own experience, do tend to be pushed to the sideline unless they affect us directly. For historians, that means looking to the past to draw lessons for the present, Not in a one-to-one way, of course, because no two historical events are really directly comparable, but it's still a matter of faith for historians, at least those of us who have not bought into the whole postmodernist thing, which is a whole other can of worms I don't want to get into because I'm recording this at 9.30 and definitely have not had enough to drink for that. Anyway, it's a matter of faith among most historians that studying the past has a value for the present. The reason we do it is because, even if we are using imperfect analogies and fallible reasoning, we can still learn something about what to do, and more often, what not to do, by looking at what has been done in the past. So with all that in mind, the coronavirus sweeping the world is of course the most recent example of something called a pandemic, a disease that has spread across the entire world. Though it's worth noting that it's not the only ongoing pandemic, the Human Immunodeficiency Virus, or HIV, is also currently labeled as a pandemic and has killed somewhere around 32 million people, according to the World Health Organization. 
But pandemic disease has a long history prior to the modern era. For most of our history as humans, regions being swept with disease every so often was just a fact of life. Most Westerners have heard of a few of the more famous examples of European or North American history, like the 19th century cholera epidemics, the smallpox epidemics of the 1500s, which not only ravaged Europe, but virtually annihilated populations around the Americas, and of course, the infamous Black Death. Those of you who are fans of Mike Duncan's work on the history of Rome will also remember his description of the Antonine Plague, which ravaged Rome at its height, and which contributed to the massive crises which plagued the empire after its peak under the first three dynasties. But for students of modern history, probably the best-known pandemic out there is the Spanish Flu, which first cropped up around the tail end of World War I, and which, depending on whose numbers you buy, killed somewhere between 20 and 50 million people. And that flu is our subject today. But first, where does that name come from? Well, it's actually a great example of that old adage that no good deed ever goes unpunished. You see, Spanish flu, which is a mutation of a larger subgroup of influenza viruses known as influenza A type H1N1, began to crop up very early in 1918, and as those of us who recall our Intro to History courses know, that's the tail end of World War I. Now, the First World War is incredibly important for historians in a lot of ways. It was the catalyst for so many important developments in modern history, from advances in the techniques of propaganda and mass mobilization used to drive total war, to massive population migrations, especially of black Americans within the United States, to areas in the North with war-related jobs, to the success of the suffragette movement in the UK and the United States. But one of the key developments of World War I, which tends not to get as much positive press, were the advances in the strategies and techniques of censorship. Wartime governments, deeply concerned about national morale in a war where victory was clearly going to go to whoever was boneheaded enough to refuse to quit for the longest, put increasingly strict controls on press coverage of the war, these restrictions on coverage applied to anything war-related, but in a total war where all of society's resources were supposed to be mobilized towards victory, that meant that pretty much anything and everything could fall under the umbrella of war-related. And that included reports of some sort of new influenza that seemed to be sweeping through military camps in early 1918. There was, however, one country which, while still fairly close to the front lines of the war, was not under a strict regime of wartime censorship. The Kingdom of Spain had remained neutral in World War I, thanks in large part to divisions within its society. The aristocracy generally favored the central powers, the German side, because of shared conservative sentiment with the German leadership. The rising Spanish middle class was largely pro-French. Thus divided, Spain ended up staying out of the war, and as a result, Spain never mobilized its press under the same strict controls the warring powers imposed. Its newspapers were free to report on this newfangled flu, and did so freely and openly, particularly when the king of Spain, Alfonso XIII, contracted the disease and became severely ill. 
the openness with which the Spanish press reported on the disease led to the completely incorrect assumption in the rest of the world that Spain was particularly hard hit by the disease. It, in fact, was not, and that the disease was from Spain, hence the name Spanish flu. And not to get too on topic, but the Spanish government did object to the term Spanish flu, and in fact, in Spain, the disease was known as the French flu. So, where did the disease come from? Honestly, we're not sure. Part of the issue with all that wartime censorship is that tracing the precise origins of the outbreak is pretty difficult. There have been a lot of different theories. For a while, it was suggested that China was the origin point of the virus, because this particular outbreak did not result in a lot of recorded deaths within China, suggesting that local populations were partially immune to the disease. Personally, I think that's a load of crap. The reason not many deaths were recorded in China was because in 1918, China's government barely controlled anything outside of Beijing proper, and the country was in the middle of a total collapse into warlordism and civil war, which does not leave a lot of time for bookkeeping on public health. Other origins have also been suggested, including an American army base in Kansas's Haskell County, where a bout of bad flu broke out in January 1918, as well as a series of allied army bases in France. For my money, and I say this as someone with no background in epidemiology beyond AP biology like 15 years ago, so take it with a grain of salt, the French origin probably makes the most sense. Anyone who is familiar with the sanitary conditions of trench warfare, or who saw 1917 when it was in theaters a couple months ago, could tell you these were not healthy conditions, and seemed to me to be the kind of place where something like a flu could really thrive. Lots of people packed closely together, minimal sanitary equipment, intense stress, and a lot of injuries, which make people more prone to disease, well, it all fits. Plus, your average base usually had some livestock on hand for meat and other supplies to feed the troops, and transmission from animals to humans is one of the more common vectors for new infectious diseases. But the truth is, we just don't know. It's even possible the flu was circulating before 1918, and in the chaos of the war, people just didn't pick up on it. Indeed, one of the reasons it's so hard to analyze this particular pandemic is that scientists were not even able to isolate the virus that causes the flu until 1933. We don't really have any direct studies of the virus behind Spanish flu because it wasn't possible to do so at the time. What we know is that by March and April 1918, people on both sides of the Atlantic were coming down with the disease. The symptoms of Spanish flu are, frankly, pretty terrifying. The ill-reported difficulty breathing, so much so that their faces sometimes literally turned blue from lack of oxygen. High fever was, of course, a given with a flu this severe. And then there was the hemorrhaging. The flu could cause bad internal bleeding to the extent that victims could end up with lungs full of blood, or end up vomiting blood, or with horrifying nosebleeds. In some cases, the bleeding was so bad, they ended up drowning in their own blood. Most terrifying of all, unlike most flus, this one hit everyone. Not just the very young and very old, but adults in the prime of their life came down with really bad cases. Nobody was safe. Once the Spanish flu got going, it racked the world in three successive waves. 
The first was in the spring of 1918 and seemed to die away by the summer. However, the virus returned in the fall and winter of 1918 and then once again in the spring of 1919. These three successive waves each spread around the globe. The second and third waves in particular were extremely deadly, with the second being the one that caused the bulk of the deaths. Japan, like most of the world, was hit by each of these three waves in succession. Travel in 1918 was, of course, not as fast as it is today. The airline industry was in its infancy, so most transit took place via rail or ship. However, those methods were still fast enough to spread the disease, and Japan was seeing more ships coming into and out of its harbors than ever before. Because remember, it's World War I, and Japan is one of two countries to actually do really well out of that conflict, the other one being the United States. It took the Imperial Japanese military all of a couple of months to smash the German Empire in Asia. From that point forward, Japan's contribution as a member of the Allies was more defined by selling military goods to its European partners than contributing manpower and lives to the war to end all wars. Japan's industries became a part of the engine driving the Allied war effort, but the thing is, all those goods being made to fight the war in Japan had to be shipped to Europe, which meant a constant stream of ships into and out of Japanese ports, some of which seemed to have some people aboard who seemed to be feeling not altogether well for some reason. Now, interestingly enough, the Spanish flu is actually pretty understudied in the wider world of modern Japanese history. I've actually only been able to find one academic who seems to have made it a part of his work, a fellow by the name of Dr. Jeffrey Rice, and even he only seems to have done a couple articles on the subject, which maybe is not as surprising as I'm thinking, because generally speaking, the history of public health and welfare is a relatively recent field of study, and one that not a lot of folks have the background to work in. Dr. Rice has done some very interesting work trying to map the phases of the Spanish flu onto records from the Japanese government, and he found some really fascinating stuff right off the bat. First, he was able to track the waves of Spanish flu through Japan. The first wave seems to have arrived in Tokyo in April 1918, so within a month or so of the disease's first detection. At first, before it was clear that this was part of a global pandemic, the disease was recorded either as the three-day fever or as wrestler's fever, a reference to the belief that the flu had been brought to Japan by three sumo wrestlers who'd returned to the country from Taiwan after doing some show matches there. This wave of infection also reached some ships in the Imperial Japanese Navy, which is unsurprising as they would have been in direct contact with quite a few ships coming out of Europe while helping run supplies to the Allies. Interestingly, this first wave appears to have been pretty mild. I haven't been able to find much in the way of death statistics from it. The second wave, though, not so much. The second wave of Spanish flu hit Japan from August to December 1918, with the third wave flaring up in late January 1919, thanks to unseasonably cold weather. The effects were devastating. About one in every three people in Japan were infected, over 21 million people total, and over a quarter million of those infected died. This gives us some rather morbid math in the form of an estimated death toll of 4.25 people per thousand, or a 1.22% fatality rate. 
The death rate didn't really start to fall off until March 1919. The final cases were not discharged from the hospital until July. And actually, to top things off, Japan was hit in the fall of 1919 with another wave of flu that killed about 60,000 people, but by this point, the flu virus itself would have mutated and was thus no longer technically Spanish flu. Statistical attempts to chart the spread of the disease to determine its point of entry into Japan are pretty much impossible. The first cases of the second wave cropped up in August in Fukushima, Ibaraki, Nara, and Yamanashi, which, for those of you not familiar with Japanese geography, that's pretty much all over the map in terms of location. There's no clear pattern here. I mean, Chiba Prefecture, which is right next to Tokyo, and Tokushima, often the rural island of Shikoku, got their first cases in the same two-week span in late October. That's wild, and it suggests just how fast and unpredictably this virus could spread. The only thing we can say for certain in terms of geography is that there's a pretty clear correlation between rural and underdeveloped prefectures and higher death rates. Eight prefectures reported death rates over 6 per 1,000, so about 1.5 times the national average. Kagawa, Saitama, Totori, Shimane, Fukui, Hyogo, Oita, and Gifu. In 1918, really only Hyogo, home to the massive port of Kobe, was a predominantly urban prefecture. The rest were still very rural, and a few of those places still are. The Japanese government was caught pretty flat-footed by this. The health ministry report on its responses to the pandemic actually starts with an admission that nobody at the ministry could remember at the time how Japan had dealt with its last wave of epidemic flu back in 1890, which, I gotta say, off the bat does not instill a lot of confidence. From what I've seen, the official response didn't really get going until October 1918. And remember, the earliest infections of the deadly Wave 2 were reported in August, so that's two months behind the times. The health ministry's response was, well, let's call it uninspired. It consisted of things like sending reports on the spread of the flu overseas to immigration and quarantine officials with urgent warnings to, quote, attend to the health of the nation by preventing the flu from spreading to Japan through, quote, all suitable steps, but... A, the ministry provided no guidance for what it considered to be suitable steps, and B, it's October, the flu is already in Japan. This sort of anemic response seems to have been pretty typical of how the health ministry responded to second wave infections more generally. It designed some posters to be printed up and distributed to prefectural governments, and sent public health officers into some of the worst affected areas, but the official report produced after the pandemic actually doesn't have anything about what those officers saw. Presumably, it was bad. Instead, it was the prefectural governments which actually took on most of the responsibility for informing the public about safety measures. They distributed posters and provided flyers given by the central government, which usually just explained the dangers, provided some basic safety tips like covering up your coughs or wearing a mask, the prefectural governments were the ones which worked with local newspapers to print up warnings about how to prevent infection, the written word being the primary method by which information was spread at this time. The prefectural governments were also the ones who made sure those warnings were printed in the easiest, most straightforward terminology possible, 
so that even those with low-level educations could still read it. Beyond that, public health officials out in the prefectures generally pushed two key remedies, gargling and masking. The theory behind gargling was that it would wash out the throat and thus prevent upper respiratory infections. So far as I know, there's no scientific evidence supporting this idea that it actually works. Public health officials all over Japan's prefectures encouraged people to use a special gargle solution that was prepared by the Japan Pharmaceutical Association and which was distributed around the country, composed of a fun concoction of lukewarm water, chlorate of potash, boric acid solution, sodium chloride solution, hydrogen peroxide, potassium iodide, and tincture of iodine. Yum yum yum, if I do say so myself. Some prefectures even set up special gargling stations in high-traffic areas, so you could get a little swig for yourself on your way to work. But again, there's no evidence that gargling actually worked, though the wide-ranging public health campaign supporting it made the practice very popular, and arguably is the reason that gargling actually remains common in Japan today. Then there's masking. The National Health Ministry was slow to make any decisions about whether to recommend it, and prefectural responses varied pretty wildly. Some prefectures, 11 in total, went so far as to order any public servant who was outside to be wearing a surgical mask. The Army and Navy ministries ordered all of their service members masked up as well. Some businesses, including theaters and cinemas, required people to mask up before going inside. All of this demand, naturally enough, led to severe mask shortages early in Phase 2, though production was able to ramp up pretty quickly. Local governments were generally effective at mobilizing private groups, everyone from the Red Cross to the Patriotic Women's Association to local Buddhist temples, to make and produce masks. Some prefectures even drafted school-age students into producing masks, mostly girls because even a virus can't kill the patriarchy. This is not proven, but it's certainly possible that the widespread use of masking around East Asia as a safeguard against infection actually comes from this time period. The practice was also encouraged in Japanese colonies like Taiwan and Korea, as well as overseas Japanese communities in China, and may have spread to the rest of East Asia from there, though again, this is not documented, only theorized. Speaking of Japanese colonies, it's also worth noting that the colonies operated on very different principles during this time period. You see, the central government did not issue official stay-at-home or shelter-in-place orders for the main islands of Japan during the Spanish flu. The official report of the health ministry after the fact simply stated that such a move would have been impossible, but not why. One imagines the decision was mostly economic, because remember, none of this is happening in a vacuum. The pandemic hit Japan right in the middle of one of the most volatile points of the interwar period. The rice riots of 1918 literally started in between the first and second waves of the Spanish flu pandemic. Those riots were a response to the beginnings of an economic downturn brought on by the end of World War I. In that atmosphere, one imagines that the economic hit from a national widespread stay-at-home order was pretty unpopular. The colonies operated under very different principles. The only responsible authority was the governor-general appointed by the Japanese government. 
the government general of Taiwan did issue a stay-at-home order during the second wave, closing down pretty much the entire island for several weeks to slow the spread of the disease. I was not able to find information on whether Korea's government general followed suit, but what I have found suggested it did not. The flu ravaged Korea with an average estimated death rate of 6 per 1,000, as bad as the worst-hit parts of mainland Japan. Taiwan was not as badly hit, though it too suffered quite badly. During the worst months of Wave 2, the average death rate on Taiwan increased by over 300%. In both colonies, widespread poverty and low-quality health infrastructure also contributed to high mortality rates, and possibly to underreported death tolls as well, because infected individuals may not have even been able to go get treatment. It's entirely possible that the actual death toll of the Spanish flu in the colonies was even higher than the roughly 200,000 combined figure given for Korea and Taiwan. Compounding the issue was the fact that in Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, there just weren't enough hospitals available to treat the sick, though again, this was much more of a problem in the colonies. Public health data show the vast majority of Spanish flu cases in Japanese territory were treated at home. Only in cases of pneumonia-like complications were people brought to hospitals. And even then, there was a question of capacity. There was no guarantee the nearest hospital had an open bed. Newspapers from the time are full of articles about how to care for a sick loved one while protecting yourself. One Tokyo Asahi Shimbun article closed with a strong warning, quote, don't spend the night sleeping next to someone who has influenza. But the information in these articles could be of mixed quality. They suggested, very often, keeping patients hydrated, especially with hot drinks, which is good, but did not include information about another key at-home treatment for serious cases, sponging the forehead with water to control fever. And for very serious cases especially, controlling at fever is really important. Though, to be fair, most people seem to have figured that one out on their own. Some prefectures, like Okayama, actually ran out of ice altogether due to massive runs on the product to help treat fevers. Less well-documented, though likely also to have been a part of the national response to the flu, are things like widespread sanitization initiatives to wash down high-contact surfaces, though those initiatives are described in some fragmentary ways in some texts, like a Nagoya paper which describes government-sponsored groups going through each ward of the city and disinfecting the schools. Very little detailed information about what that looked like is available. We know from other sources that disinfection efforts were a common part of the playbook for controlling infectious disease in workplaces and schools, so presumably this was a pretty common site around Japan, though once again organized at the local, not the national level. There also seems to have been something of a national run on something called patent medicines, treatments marketed under a patent produced by a single company and available without a prescription. If you know anything about the history of medicine, you know that these medicines were usually, at best, useless. But in an age before serious drug regulations, the companies that made them were allowed to operate freely and pretty much falsely advertise the benefits, and people grasp at what they can when they're scared. Sales numbers for these medicines are hard to come by, but it seems they were quite high, and price gouging was also an issue. 
One small town near Ise saw a literal riot in November 1918, as steel workers in the town smashed up the main street out of anger when local shopkeepers bumped up the prices of patent medicines by 50%. Sales of traditional Chinese medicine also appear to have gone up, though here too, regulation, and thus data on sales or effectiveness, is functionally non-existent. One of the other common attempts to control the spread of the flu at this time involved vaccination. But wait, I hear some of you saying, didn't you say that scientists weren't able to isolate the flu virus itself until 1933? How do you make a vaccine, which is ultimately just a weakened bacteria or virus, which is injected into your body so your body learns how to fight it, if you don't have the virus? The answer is, you can't. The vaccines used in Japan during the Spanish flu were not flu vaccines. Instead, they were injected treatments for symptoms of the Spanish flu, for example, a vaccine against a bacteria known to cause pneumonia in the lungs or something like that. And that, to use the technical language of the medical profession, is not really how it works, or at least not in terms of treating the flu itself. It is true the Spanish flu weakened people's immune systems quite badly, which tends to happen when you're vomiting blood, and that secondary infections were a leading cause of death from the Spanish flu, and this sort of treatment could work for that, but that's not the same thing as being able to actually inoculate against the Spanish flu, and popular coverage of the treatments could sometimes confuse those issues to dangerous results. The case of one country doctor whose work is quite well documented is illustrative here. Dr. Gomibuchi Ijiro was a small-town doctor in Yaitacho, Tochigi Prefecture, about 120 kilometers, or 75 miles, north of Tokyo. Tochigi was hit by the second wave of Spanish flu in early October 1918, and from that point onward, Dr. Gomibuchi was neck-deep in trying to treat patients. His work doing this is fairly well documented, because after the fact he would publish an article on his treatment approaches in a Japanese medical journal, and self-publish a book of reflections on his time during the Spanish flu. That book contains some journal entries from the days of the flu pandemic. It's a bit on the long side, but since this has been an episode dominated primarily by statistics, I wanted to read out one of those entries for you to give things more of a human touch. Quote, It started snowing about 10 o'clock in the morning of December 11th, and I had received a request to go to two houses in Anzawa early that morning. I had set off on my bicycle not long after it started snowing. On the way, I visited and treated two households with influenza cases, so it was 2 p.m. before I reached Anzawa. Most of the houses were shuttered against the snow, so it all felt quiet and desolate. I noticed a rickshaw parked under the eaves of one house, and I guessed that a doctor was visiting a patient there. When I got to one of the stricken houses, which had called for me, I found a young bride who had caught the flu two or three days previously. She was pregnant and had miscarried and died. Because the family were now all sick, the young woman's own family had to arrange her funeral. Now the 39-year-old wife of the householder had developed pneumonia. For the past several days, all the doctors had joined in treating her. I saw her and guessed she would not last out the night. Then I went to the other house to which I'd been called. After that, I treated people in eight other households. 
By now it was getting dark. I set off homeward in the snow about 7 p.m. On the way, I passed a little liquor bar and could see the lights through the shoji paper windows. I could smell the sake and hear the chatter and laughter inside. It set my mouth watering, but being a doctor, I am forbidden these things, so I trudged by in the snow. The house where I first saw the rickshaw now had its shutters open, and I could see people silhouetted against the paper windows. The flu sufferer there had died, and already the neighbors were gathering around mourning. I walked another 300 meters or so through a wood and past a Buddhist temple surrounded by its cemetery, looking desolate and sad. There was no sound in the snow. I cannot describe how my blood ran cold at the sudden wailing of a woman who was calling to her dying husband. To judge by that, a fourth person would die during the night, to add to the three who had already died in the village that day. I got home at around 8 o'clock that evening. The girl Akuzi Yasu, who we employed as a childminder, had come down with the flu on 28th November and had developed pneumonia. She was in critical condition. I had been treating her, but already her pulse was weak. She died pitifully the next morning. She was only 15. I realized now that there were so many patients and there were not enough doctors to treat them all." Unquote. There's a lot to unpack here, both in terms of the number of cases Dr. Gomibuchi treated, can you imagine doing that every day from October until March or so, and the tragedy of the deaths themselves. And frankly, I found it astounding to read about things like a bar that was still open months into a deadly wave of infections, and apparently pretty full. That's just crazy to me. Even the gathering of neighbors in a home that had just lost someone to a flu, it feels awful to say, but doing that did risk spreading the infection even further, and really gets at the horrible choices that have to be made during a pandemic. Dr. Gomibuchi would try anything and everything he could think of to treat his patients, and he actually hit on a very interesting approach. He started giving them a serum intended to treat diphtheria, a bacterial infection that attacks the throat. It seemed to work pretty well, at least on those he gave it to. None of the people he treated with the serum died, but by his own admission he only gave the treatment to those he thought most likely to survive, and he didn't start doing this until late January 1919, when the mortality curve in his area was already starting to level off. But still, it seemed like something that might work, and the treatment was the main focus of Dr. Gomibuchi's post-flu publications, as he wanted to pass down the trick because he was convinced that a new flu pandemic would come in 34 years, working backwards from the last one in 1890. And actually, he was only five years off, the Asian flu pandemic came in 1957, not 1952. If you're wondering, Dr. Gomibuchi did survive despite his exposure to so many sick people, but his writing is tinged with regret. The section on Akuzu Yasu, their childminder who died at 15, is followed by a long, despairing section about how if he'd figured out the diphthera serum treatment faster, maybe he could have saved her. Also very revealing in Dr. Gomibuchi's recollections, is the complete absence of any of the kind of measures the central government was promoting, masking and gargling, as preventative measures, or indeed of any guidance from the central government at all. That really makes it clear how flat-footed the central government was caught by the Spanish flu. When the dust of the pandemic finally settled, the death toll was catastrophic, 
Again, over a quarter million people dead. 4.5 people out of every 1,000 in Japan. And yet, it could have been so much worse. Japan was actually one of the better-off countries during the Spanish flu. The United States had a death toll of 5.2 per thousand, jumping to 20 per thousand in the notoriously underfunded tribal healthcare system, handling cases among Native Americans. Other parts of Asia were hit far worse. Indonesia, then a Dutch colony, saw a death rate of 17 per thousand. British-ruled India had one between 40 per thousand and 60 per thousand, depending on where in the subcontinent you were. Generally, non-white colonial populations got the worst of it, a reminder of the hidden costs of imperialism. The Maori of New Zealand lost 43 per thousand of their population. Western Samoa, at the time ruled by New Zealand, had the worst death rate in the entire world, a staggering 220 per thousand. Why did Japan do so well, relatively speaking? Well, for starters, it had not been as badly affected by the First World War, in terms of lost infrastructure or wealth, nor was it subjected to cruel and inefficient management so common among colonial regimes like India or Western Samoa. Beyond this, the first relatively mild wave of Spanish flu seemed to have been pretty widespread in Japan, and that seems to have actually been a good thing. Those infected had antibodies that made them immune to the second wave. Beyond that, the central government's response, while certainly not good, was actually, depressingly enough, on the better side for the time. The recommendation to mask up was a solid one. Gargling's effectiveness is debated, but at least it wasn't actively ineffective. Beyond this, the survival of traditional Japanese medicine may have actually been a part of the success of the treatments. Kanpo, the Japanese term for Chinese medicine, does contain some very effective fever-reducing treatments, and keeping fevers down was one of the more effective treatments available for severe cases. So what can we learn from all this? Well, for me at least, in doing the research, I was really struck by how many parallels I could draw between the Spanish flu and our own predicaments today. Though I do want to be clear here, COVID-19 is not the Spanish flu, they're not even caused by the same type of virus. There are, perhaps, some general lessons to be learned here about public health, but one-to-one -one comparisons, as always in history, are not really effective or something you should put direct trust in. The Japanese government was clearly caught flat-footed by Spanish flu, and was not effective in terms of coordinating a national strategy for the fight against the virus. It was effective, however, in having a consistent message about prevention, based on the best understanding available at the time of how to prevent the spread of flu, which isn't saying much by our standards, but that's better than nothing. Media outlets were also consistent and cooperative in spreading information on public health, and while they missed some things, the guidelines they did put out there also appear to have been the right call for the situation. On the flip side, the failure to put restrictions on travel and on business did contribute to the spread of the disease. I'll be really curious to see if there's ever any archival research done to actually uncover a clear rationale for why the prospect of any restrictions was discarded out of hand. What can we as individuals take away from this? I think the most important thing that I at least would take away is the importance of finding sources of information that are trustworthy 
and being consistent in listening to them. One similarity between our current situation and the Spanish flu is that nobody is really sure in the moment how this is going to unfold. We're in uncharted territory in a lot of ways, and in some countries, we have agencies and branches of government actively contradicting each other. Which again, the Japanese health ministry could have done some things better, but at least their messaging was consistent. So for me, I suppose that in uncertain times, the biggest takeaway is that it's more important than ever to be careful who you listen to, and to use the foremost skill of the historian. Rigorous critical thinking and fact-checking, rather than taking things on faith, whenever you do hear anything, especially if it seems outlandish or too good to be true. Much as in 1918, nobody really knows where we're going to end up. In the meantime, dear listeners, play it safe, take care of yourselves, and take care of each other. And if you need me, I'll be right here with my giant stacks of toilet paper, several bottles of scotch, and a brand new Blu-ray of the Miyamoto Musashi Samurai Trilogy. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Thomas Arison and to new patrons Timothy Cheek, Will Moore, and Peter Walker for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we take on one of my very favorite filmmakers of all time, Ozu Yasujiro.